You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. Even though Sjogren's syndrome is one of the most prevalent autoimmune disorders, it is often underdiagnosed because the symptoms can mimic certain other conditions. How can we be aware of the warning signs for this sometimes disabling disease? Joining us to discuss Sjogren's syndrome is Dr. Frederick Vivino, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and Director of the Penn's Sjogren's Syndrome Center. Dr. Vavino is also Chief of the Division of Rheumatology at Penn Presbyterian Medical Center. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Vavino. My pleasure. In medical school residency, I was taught Sjogren's Syndrome is dry eyes and put some drops in and we're done, but it goes beyond that, doesn't it? It was exactly the same with me, but in the last 10 or 15 years, I think physicians are starting to realize that there's significant morbidity and even mortality associated with this disorder. Do we see symptoms beyond dry eyes? Well, we do, Dr. Friedman. Just like lupus is a systemic disorder, you know, in Sjogren's, the immune system targets the exocrine glands, and it has the potential to affect virtually any organ system in the body with the notable exception of the heart. Is it something that we would be seeing commonly in a primary care practice? I think a lot of primary care physicians do see Sjogren's, but because it has such a varied presentation, it's not always recognized. Sjogren's can present with symptoms that mimic menopause. It can present with chronic fatigue. It can present with musculoskeletal pain, or it can present with internal organ problems like interstitial lung disease or renal tubular acidosis. So it really does cause a large variety of problems, and sometimes it's difficult for someone to put these seemingly unrelated signs and symptoms together and tie them up in one big picture. Very interesting. And do we look for this in the typical rheumatologic patient, the 20s and 30s female? Well, the typical patient is a perimenopausal Caucasian female, but, you know, as our awareness of the disease increases and our ability to diagnose it improves, we're starting to see cases in younger and younger women all the time, in women of a variety of racial and ethnic backgrounds, in men, and in more and more children. So it's really a disease that can affect almost anyone although classically 90% of the patients are female. And in that postmenopausal range and, That's and, right. and more white women. Yes. I see. In taking a history, you mentioned several things, but the dry eyes is still one of the cardinal historical features? Yes. The most common symptoms would be dry eyes, dry mouth, fatigue, and musculoskeletal pain. And probably about 80% of the overall patient group presents with the classic Sicka syndrome, or what we call whole body dryness. Boy, and that, as I think about patients, those are fairly nonspecific symptoms, and certainly side effects from many medications give you that dryness. So I guess you really have to have a high index of suspicion. You really do. And, you know, as you point out, medicines are far and away the most common cause of Sicka symptoms, and you can see them with other systemic disorders, with some viral illnesses like hepatitis C or HIV, with other diseases like hyperlipidemia, sarcoid, amyloid, and 
with other salivary gland problems. You really have to go through a comprehensive diagnostic evaluation before you can decide whether the patient's sick of symptoms are due to Sjogren's or something else. Are there any things that are helpful on physical exam in patients like this? Well, you know what, Dr. Friedman, the most striking feature on physical exam is usually the fact that the patients look a lot better than they feel. Many of them look well. They don't look chronically ill. You know, their friends and families tend to write them off as being hypochondriacs. And unfortunately, many of them go several years before anyone thinks of testing them for autoimmune disease. I think the average duration between the time when symptoms begin and the time the diagnosis is finally made in in this country is about seven years. Wow. So early on, they can look normal. But of course, you know, you can see subtle signs in the mouth, a decreased salivary pool or dry tongue, or you can lose the luster of the eye, but it's very easily missed on exam. And I think of, in terms of testing, I think of some of the blood work ANA and, and certain subtypes of ANA. Does that relate to the underlying pathophysiology, and, and what tests should we be ordering? You know, it is an autoimmune disease, so as you point out, these patients form a lot of different autoantibodies. And just like rheumatoid arthritis and systemic lupus, they can form rheumatoid factor in the blood or antinuclear antibodies. And there's actually a lot of clinical as well as serologic overlap with these two disorders that are often thought of as cousins to Sjogren's. But the two most specific autoantibodies are anti-SSA or SSB, which are also known as anti-Rho or anti-La. They're mostly found in Sjogren's to a lesser degree in lupus, and we usually do a pretty good job differentiating between those two. So if the antibodies are there in the blood, that might be the first clue that the patient has Sjogren's syndrome. And are there certain other tests? Do you look for leukopenia or other things we might typically see in rheumatologic disorders? Well, you know, they get pretty much a complete history and physical exam with blood counts, and they can have leukopenia and lymphopenia. Rarely, they can develop kidney disease and renal tubular acidosis, so we get kidney and function tests. They can get autoimmune liver disease and thyroid problems, so we send all of those tests as well. But when we're specifically interested in Sjogren's, the main objectives are to send the serologic tests and to do tests to look for objective evidence of dry mouth and dry eyes. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me today to discuss Sjogren's Syndrome is Dr. Frederick Vivino, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and Director of the Penn Sjogren's Syndrome Center. Dr. Vivino, the tests that objectify dry eyes, dry mouth, can you describe those? Are these things we can do in the office? Some of them we can do in the office. For the eyes, for example, we can do a Schirmer's test where we put a little strip of filter paper in the eye and measure tear production within a five-minute period. At least that's something the rheumatologists like to do. I don't know if you do that in internal medicine, but if not, then the ophthalmologist, especially the cornea specialist, can do that test, Mm -hmm. as well as another test called vital dye staining where they add a drop of a vital dye such as rose bengal or lysamine green to the eye, and they have the patient blink, and they look at the outer surface of the eye under the slit lamp for these little punctate areas of staining that denote areas where the epithelium of the cornea or conjunctiva are damaged or dying due to chronic dryness. 
So if the tear production is significantly decreased or you see dry spots on the surface of the eye, uh, that can help with the objective documentation of dry eyes. For the mouth, you can measure our salivary flow rate in your office. That's called whole mouth unstimulated silometry. And at the Penn Children's Center, we're really into spit. So a common <laughs> test that we'd ask people to do would be to swallow once and expectorate into a container for 15 minutes. And then we weigh the container and are able to measure the amount or volume of saliva produced per unit time. So that can document dry mouth. You can also order salivary scintigraphy, a nuclear medicine test that's very similar in technique to a thyroid scan. Same isotope, the same very similar scanning parameters, except that we look at the glands for uptake, resting function, and stimulated function. And in the old days, not so much anymore, but occasionally people will order a parotid sialogram where water soluble contrast dye is injected intraorally into Stenson's duct to make a picture of the ductal system of the parotids looking for abnormalities, areas where you see stenosis or post-stenotic dilatation or microaneurysms, which helps to verify that something is indeed wrong with the salivary glands. So there are a variety of different things, ophthalmologic things as well as uh, looking at the salivary glands and the amount of saliva. Very interesting. How often is Sjogren's confined to the eyes and the mouth versus becoming a more systemic problem? Well, the systemic and internal organ manifestations occur in about 30% of patients. So fortunately, the majority just deal with dryness. 20 to 30% have more serious internal organ manifestations. And about 4 to 5% unfortunately develop non-Hodgkin's B-cell Lymphoma is a long-term complication of this disease. And when it is more localized, I, I know we do have some very efficacious treatments for this. Yes, we do. You know, there's a plethora of artificial tears that you can use for dry eyes. If you walk into any drugstore, you'd be impressed with the number of available products and ocular lubricants for use at bedtime. There are now long-acting tear inserts called lacrocerts. They're little pellets you can put in the eye and you get them started with a drop of artificial tears, and they provide relief to some patients. And about four or five years ago, topical cyclosporin ophthalmic solution, 0.05%, was FDA-approved and is now marketed under the trade name Restasis. That's an eye drop that people apply in each eye twice daily, and it treats ocular surface inflammation, and it often significantly improves symptoms of dry eyes. My patients who are on that have certainly expressed their pleasure and relief with that. I've occasionally tried to prescribe an artificial saliva, and that is not met with as great acceptance. Are those used at all? Well, we still use them, Dr. Friedman, but mainly as adjunctive treatments. I think the best treatments for dry mouth nowadays are what we call secretagogues or medications that stimulate flow. And two examples are pyrocarpine, which is also known as salogen. That's a natural remedy that actually was originally derived from a shrub in South America. It's a cholinergic agonist that stimulates flow. It was FDA approved in 1998, and then two years later, another cholinergic agonist called Savimeline or Evozac was also FDA approved. And uh, both of those medications are just approved for dry mouth, but they not only help dry mouth, but other 
oral symptoms and they can stimulate flow. And the clinical experience with these drugs suggests that not only are they efficacious for the mouth, but they may help dryness in other parts of the body as well, even though they're not FDA approved for any other indications besides dry mouth. Well, I want to thank very much Dr. Frederick Vivino from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine for being with us today and going over Sjogren's Syndrome. He reviewed for us the spectrum of symptoms with which it can present and how we might diagnose it. And then he has gone over some treatments for this disorder. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. To learn more about this or any other show, please visit us at ReachMD.com, where you can also register and sign up for access to our on-demand features. Thank you for listening.